Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society, and I am a host on the channel. And today I am pleased to have with us Professor Michael Beckley. Professor Beckley is Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University. Previously, he was at the Kennedy School of Government, as well as uh, having worked in the past with the U.S. Department of Defense. And he's also been at the Rand Corporation. Today, we are speaking about his book, Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower, published by Cornell University Press. Welcome, Professor Beckley. Thanks very much for having me. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Uh, The basic argument is that the United States is likely to remain the world's sole superpower for many decades and possibly throughout this century. Why do so many academics and, and I'm sorry, please continue. Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask, go uh, why do so many academics and commentators posit that the world will become a multipolar one within the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I think most discussion of sort of changes in the balance of power rely on a handful of, of gross indicators, so things like GDP or military spending or trade volumes. And the problem with these indicators is they give us a distorted view of where the true balance of wealth and power actually is in the world, because they tally countries' resources without deducting the costs that countries pay to police, protect, provide services for their people. It would be like if analysts looked at businesses only using net profits rather than, uh, uh, only using gross profits rather than looking at net profits. So as a result, the view that we often have and that you read in the, me- in the media really exaggerates the power resources of poor countries with big populations. So China looks very powerful. India looks very powerful because these countries, they generate a lot of economic activity. They field really big militaries. But what's often missed is that these countries also bear massive welfare and security burdens from their huge populations that drain a lot of their wealth bog down big chunks of their military. So what I try to do is provide a perspective that takes those kind of costs into account. And I find that when you do, the United States actually has a huge lead, much bigger than most people typically assume um, economically and militarily over China, as well as the other great powers. And that the United States actually has the best fundamentals going forward. So it has the best prospects to grow its power base in the future, whereas China, I actually find, has the worst among the great powers. Uh, Taking that point, can you expand a bit into the historical case studies you employ in the book to show, quote, power is a function of net stocks of resources, unquote? Yeah, so I think, you know, one example actually comes just from China's own history. So if you, if you, looked at China in, say, the 19th or early 20th centuries, it looked like the undisputed superpower of the world, just based on the way that we think and measure power. Um, Because at the time, it had the largest GDP, the largest economy in the world. Um, It had the largest military, the biggest military budget, the highest trade volumes, the most manufacturing output. It had this big scientific and government bureaucracy. But this, you know, obviously, if if you study Chinese history, you know that this was the time that the Chinese refer to now as their century of humiliation, when their country got ripped apart 
by smaller but more efficient rivals, so most notably Britain and Japan. And China's problem at the time was that for all of its vast size, it suffered from severe production, welfare, security costs. So its industries required several times the inputs, you know, labor and, and money and machinery to generate the same level of output as the other great powers. Um, its technology was a generation or more behind that of other leading states. And its massive population consumed virtually all of the surplus wealth in the country, and its military was bogged down, quelling internal rebellions and defending its sprawling borders. So with so many costs, China couldn't compete and ultimately got brutalized by other great powers. And, and this, you know, I, I, I highlight this in the book because I think it's the most applicable example, but this certainly is not an isolated example. If you look at the history of Russia, basically over the same time period, it had the biggest economy and military in Europe, for most of the 19th century, but this was a time when Russia suffered a series of crushing defeats to Britain, France, and Germany that ultimately culminated in the collapse of the Russian Empire. Um, and more recently, you know, the Soviet Union outpaced the United States by most measures that we use to measure power today. So, you know, industrial output, military and R&D spending, military size, nuclear weapons, scientists and engineers. But it still lost the Cold War because at the end of the day, the United States was a more efficient power. It minimized costs at the same time that it maximized output of wealth and military power. So I think all of those and, and literally hundreds of other examples show time and again that power is not just about size, but it's also about efficiency. Um, and this is where I think China, for all of its power today, still has some critical weaknesses. Uh, how trustworthy, in your opinion, is Chinese government data in measuring GDP growth and other socioeconomic uh, measuring? I think it's not trustworthy. Uh, there's been many studies done on, on China's GDP and industrial output and manufacturing data that suggest, you know, the high end suggests that maybe China's Output is, is uh, its growth rate is roughly half of what the government listed rate is. But some economists think China's economy hasn't, has barely grown essentially since the 2008 financial crisis. So I usually just, I take the high estimates. But basically what these studies have shown is that, uh, you know, China's GDP growth rate doesn't track with other economic indexes that are less susceptible to manipulation. So particular outputs in particular industries, those don't track at all. Uh, China's growth rates look way too smooth, and they're often posted well before data should actually be available for that particular economic quarter. Um, and, you know, China's own leaders have admitted that even they don't use these kind of headline um, government statistics when they're doing their own economic analysis. So the former premier of China admitted that. We learned that through the WikiLeaks um, documents. And then the former head of China's Statistics Bureau also said, you know, we have a massive problem with um, with basically local governments inflating their output statistics because that's how those local government officials get promoted. And as a result, the national level statistics are highly suspect. Um, in the book, I, I take China statistics at face value and still find that China is far, way far behind the United States. But I note that a lot of rigorous studies suggest that China's um, output is far below what's actually reported. I think the most interesting ones have looked at electricity output and, and what you can see at nighttime from satellites. 
And they show that basically China's output may be 30% lower than what is actually reported just based on what you can observe, like in terms of the lights that are on and stuff. And they've, they've found ways to, to use that as kind of a proxy for economic output. So I don't think they're trustworthy, but in the book, I sort of take them with a grain of salt. Overall, how do you assess the socioeconomic gap between the USA and China? Uh, I think you know, China poses a number of asymmetric threats. So you know, one key point of the book, it, it's not to argue that the United States is invulnerable and doesn't face any challenges. And China poses a number of really big challenges for the United States. The point that I try to make in the book simply is that China is not what defense analysts call a pure competitor, you know, like a rival superpower that um, can match the United States or come close to matching the United States across all the various economic and technological and military and diplomatic dimensions of power. Um, you know, in, in sort of the brute force calculations I do in the book, I find that the United States has roughly four times as much wealth five to six times the number of military capabilities of China. The United States has uh, over 60 allies. China's only ally is North Korea. And then looking forward to sort of future uh, trends in the balance of power, the United States is just in a much better position geographically, uh, uh, institutionally, and in terms of its population. I mean, population alone, you know, China is going to lose 200 million workers over the next 30 years and it's going to gain 300 million senior citizens. That's literally the worst aging crisis in human history. So just that factor alone means it's going to be very hard for China to catch up in overall power. And I think the threat that China poses is much more asymmetric. So in the military domain, it's much more about the local balance of power over something like Taiwan, not about the overall balance of power um, between the two militaries. I think, uh, Diplomatically, it's not so much that China is able to woo over lots of allies all over Eurasia or something like the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's more that China may become sort of a giant spoiler that helps prop up authoritarian regimes, helps them create their own sovereign internets in ways that challenge key U.S. interests. So it's really looking at more of these sort of asymmetric type of threats, and I try to isolate them in the book. So you would not say that de facto rather than de jure Pakistan and Cambodia, or perhaps uh, Laos, could be considered Chinese uh, allies. I, yeah, I, I think you're right that de facto those countries could be considered, um, you know, certainly aligned with China, if, but you know they don't have defense treaties. That said, you know, when I spend time in, in China, a lot of Chinese security analysts view those countries as almost as much of liabilities as they are um, assets. I mean, you look just Pakistan is, is certainly a country that has received enormous amounts, you know, over the years, hundreds of billions of dollars in aid and infrastructure projects from China. But it's because of the political instability there. Um, and there's a history that suggests that the alliance is not as tight as maybe is often portrayed, that it, there's, it's at least a lot of Chinese analysts consider it almost as much of a liability as an asset. Would it be correct to, to uh, state that overall you don't give much uh, weight or agree with uh, David Bell's argument that China's governance is that of a superior sort of uh, meritocracy? I, I think that is no, no China expert I know would agree with, with that statement. I think, again, there's been 
a lot of in-depth research done on how Communist Party officials are promoted, how the Communist Party maintains its power. And a lot of the best research suggests that it's essentially a giant patronage system where essentially top party leaders have very tight relationships with um, the bosses of state-owned enterprises, local government officials. They provide subsidies, protection from international competition. In exchange, those companies provide employment to keep the population happy with the rule of the Communist Party. And they also will do the bidding of whatever the, the party wants them to do. So the party says, we need you to invest in this region or invest in this country to, for political connections, we will do that. And so it's basically a bargain among these elites. And studies have shown that you're promoted there, um, you know, less based on your ability to actually generate positive returns for the mass population, but how well you can earn in these patronage networks, how well you can prop up the quick, you know, short-term GDP, or if you can facilitate kickbacks to the right officials. Even the private sphere, there's been studies that suggest that uh, private entrepreneurs have to spend roughly 70% of their time schmoozing with Communist Party officials to, you know, get building permits and to get a loan from the state-owned banks. So, you know, it's not to say that the people that rise to the top aren't very capable people, but that's certainly not the sole criterion for how that they are promoted. Um, I, I think it's it's <laughs> when when Bell's book came out, I think a lot of China scholars were sort of scratching their heads because it's not the China that they would recognize. Why do you believe that the PLA um, does not have much of a chance of successfully invading uh, Taiwan? Uh, I think, you know, even though China has, um, you know, in, in terms of overall military power, uh, has grown much more powerful than, China, than Taiwan over the years, I think at the end of the day, it's just really hard to conquer a developed island nation. Um, you know, there's, there's only a few options that China could use to accomplish this, and all of them are some of the most difficult missions in warfare. So, you know, an amphibious invasion, a D-Day-style D-Day landing, there's only been a few successful cases in history, and those were all against overstretched forces defending hastily dug positions on foreign territory um, with small arms. So like Germans defending France, you know, on D-Day. If China invaded Taiwan today, it would be attacking massed forces defending fortified positions on home soil, and they have precision-guided missiles that could basically pick off Chinese landing craft as they putter across the Taiwan Strait. And China in particular would have a couple of problems. One is just being able to land enough troops on Taiwan. Um, you know, most military strategists would say, if you're the attacker, you need something like a three-to-one, maybe even a five-to-one advantage in order to overwhelm uh, a defender. And for China, you know, even if everything goes perfect and none of their transport craft break down or are hit, at most China could land maybe 26,000 troops on Taiwan's shores um, on the first day of an invasion. Taiwan has 130,000 active duty soldiers plus nine brigades of A-level reserve units, 2.5 million reserves overall. Um, and so they, just the numbers themselves wouldn't work out. Um, another problem is that, uh, you know, there's only 14 or so locations on Taiwan that could actually support an amphibious landing. If you look at the geography, it's either extremely muddy flats that extend out multiple miles from Taiwan's shores, or it's steep cliffs that you can't 
put an army on. So as a result, Taiwan's defenders are able to basically concentrate their forces around these key points, and China would be coming into um, a very contested environment. Um, and the problem ultimately is that, you know, China is going to lose a lot of those transport craft as they, they go across the strait. So the, the other option, the other main option would be a blockade where China tries to cut Taiwan off from critical supplies. The problem here is just that, first of all, the amount of commerce that's going into and out of Taiwan is so massive, it would be very difficult for China to sink a significant proportion of that and keep that up for weeks or months on end. Um, and the history of blockades is not promising for, for China. In the past 200 years, I'm not aware of any country being able to coerce another entity to surrender its sovereignty just through a blockade alone, because at the, the problem is, you know, when you blockade people, they tend to get very angry and they tend to want to stick it to the foreign enemy that's imposing this kind of pain. I mean, the United States slashed Japan's imports 97% in World War II, but the Japanese still fought on. So it's not clear that Taiwan would buck those historical trends. Some people think Taiwanese morale is nowhere near as high as some of these past cases. But if you look at public opinion polls, you ask people in Taiwan, there is this new sense of a distinct Taiwanese identity that suggests that Taiwan would be willing to bear significant costs in a blockade scenario, which then makes it very difficult for China. It's just not it's hard to see how it would get Taiwan to give up in a few weeks or a few months. And meanwhile, international pressure, whether it's sanctions um, or even military action against China, could be taking place. So it's not to say that China couldn't pull this off, but these are extremely high difficulty missions. And the PLA, an organization that is riddled with corruption and has basically no combat experience, especially in the maritime or air domain, it's, it just seems very unlikely it would be able to pull these things off. Why do you believe that the United States has the best overall capabilities of any existing great power as per its uh, future prospects? Uh, yeah, I think um, if you look at what makes countries powerful over the long term, it's basically three broad things. Uh, of the country, so just where it's located and its resources. Uh, the second is its political institutions, so how well do they um, generate uh, wealth and military power. And then finally, its population, so long-term sort of demographic trends. And by all of these, you know, the United States isn't necessarily first in the world across all the different measures of these factors, but it scores highly across the board, whereas China actually has a number of debilitating weaknesses. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, geographically, the United States is basically a natural economic hub and a natural military fortress. If you're going to build a superpower, you would build it here because the, the territory of the United States is packed with resources, everything from water, arable land, energy and mineral resources. It's got a lot of economic arteries, so things like navigable waterways and natural ports that makes it very cheap to ship goods all over the country. And it has direct shipping routes to the other richest parts of the world in both Europe and Asia over waterways. And the only neighbors you have to worry about are allies and relatively weak countries, so Canada and Mexico. The other great powers don't have anywhere near the same resources, and they're crowded together in Eurasia. And as a result, they often fight against each other, and some of them turn to the United States to try to form alliances. So you look at a country like China, and it's surrounded by 
19 countries. Five of those countries fought wars against China in the past 75 years. Ten of those countries still claim parts of Chinese territory as their own. So it's just a much, China's just in a much rougher neighborhood and has fewer resources. Um, demographically, the United States, it's the only population in the world that is big, but also relatively young and highly educated. So the United States has the third largest workforce, the second youngest workforce among the great powers, the hardest working workforce in terms of hours worked or wealth produced per hour, lateness of retirement. And then it also has the most educated workforce among the, the great powers. Um, and part of that is the United States has been effectively stealing brains from other countries through immigration, um, through high skill immigration. Whereas you look at other countries and most of them, you know, their, their, their populations are shrinking. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, China is going to lose 200 million workers over the next 30 years and three, and it's going to gain 300 million senior citizens. So that flip is going to really take a toll on China's power. And then the, the last um, factor that drives a country's power that I think the U.S. has some advantages in is um, in terms of institutions. Um, you know, I think the U.S. government is far from ideal. Um, I basically find that it's essentially mediocre for a developed, rich nation. Um, the small and divided U.S. state does a really bad job redistributing wealth. So as a result, you know, uh, economic inequality is, is high. Um, on the other hand, it does a good job producing wealth. Uh, it's essentially a very cutthroat competitive economy that makes it relatively easy to start a new company or to hire and fire employees or to rise from the ashes of the bankruptcy. I mean, these are all reasons why the World Economic Forum ranks the United States as the most competitive economy in the world. It also allows the United States to suck up investment and technology and human capital from other countries. And even though this political system has numerous, numerous flaws and by a lot of measures is getting worse, it's kind of deteriorating over time, it still is much better at spurring innovation and entrepreneurship than, say, the corrupt regimes in China or Russia. So nothing is guaranteed, but what I try to show in the book is that the United States not only has a big lead over its competitors, but it has these kind of structural advantages um, that, uh, you know, are what really ultimately drives the balance of power. It would really have to try to screw up this situation to fall behind some of these other competitors. So overall, you would evaluate the American state capacity as being superior to its most likely great power competitors, China, Russia, India, etc.? I think the, the countries you listed, certainly. I think Compared to, say, the European uh, great powers or Japan, you could argue that you know, U.S. institutions are actually worse by certain measures um, than those. The problem for those countries in terms of just being a great power is that they're just so much smaller than the United States. So even though I would say at least some of them have more um, capable political institutions, they don't have the demographic or resource size to compete on the same level, say, a China or a Russia. How important from a strategic standpoint is the recent decline of U.S.-Turkish relations? Uh, I think it's, it's important from a regional strategic standpoint. Um, I think first in, in, in the Middle East, uh, the decline of that relationship, you know, Turkey has been a major jump off point for the United States to exercise influence over the greater Middle East. It's been um, a major military partner. And then obviously in Europe, 
it also um, is a strategic setback just because it throws the um, the the project that the United States has been trying to set up in Europe over the last 75 years through NATO, at least into some question where you have this kind of schism between what are supposed to be major allies. Now, do I think the loss of Turkey you know, suddenly turns the tables and allows some other great power to rise up? No, but it obviously hurts U.S. influence in both the Middle East and in Europe. Uh, how? I'm sorry. Why do you cast doubt on the endurance and longevity of the Sino-Russian, I wouldn't say alliance, but entente? Uh, I think, you know, just first of all, historically, you know, those countries have leaned towards each other in the past. And ultimately, even when they were ideological allies, like during the Cold War, the geopolitical realities, the fact that you have two very powerful countries right on each other's borders, ultimately limits cooperation. It doesn't mean that they won't cooperate in ways that hurt U.S. interests. In fact, I think because they have a common interest in pushing back against the liberal international order, you know, turning back democracy, trying to carve out exclusive economic spheres and influence, even if they don't form an alliance, they can still do a lot of damage. But at the end of the day, I don't expect them to have a tight alliance. Um, for that, you'd have to show that these countries are actually sacrificing some of their own interests for the good of their strategic relationship. Whereas, as far as I can tell, it's more of a marriage of convenience where they cooperate on areas that they have common interests, but at the end of the day, they remain rivals in other areas. So they're both, for example, trying to make inroads in Central Asia. But China, of course, wants to link that region through the Belt and Road Initiative. Russia wants to do it through the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, their border, obviously, they resolved their, their border dispute in 2008, but they still have to keep tabs on each other. They still have large military forces near that border, and they conduct exercises that effectively simulate an attack from one to the other. Um, arms sales, you know, Russia used, has sold China lots of arms, but now increasingly it's selling advanced weapons to some of China's chief rivals like India and Vietnam. So as far as I can tell, both countries are pursuing their interests. Where those interests overlap, they cooperate and certainly cause a number of problems for the United States. But when I see in the media that it's being portrayed as this new tight alliance um, that's going to form sort of its own pole in the international system, I'm just very skeptical given the conflicts of interest as well as just the history where, you know, during the Cold War, these two countries started as allies and then ended up fighting a war against each other in 1969, because a lot of those geopolitical factors I mentioned above, um, you know, drove them ultimately to competition. Can you explicate what you mean by unipolarity? And, and would you give a surmise as how long the current American unipolar ascendancy will last? Yeah, when I, you know, when I say unipolarity, I just mean that the United States has more than twice the amount of wealth and military power of any country. Um, I know some people, when they refer to unipolar, unipolarity, they envision a world where the United States is sort of like a quasi-world government bossing other countries around. That's, I don't think that's the case at all. I, I freely acknowledge in the book you know, and try to highlight various challenges that the United States faces. I simply mean a situation where the United States just in terms of power resources, is head and shoulders above that of other countries. Uh, and some people might say, oh, well, that's, that's 
almost sort of trivial, but I think it's actually quite profound. I mean, we've never had this kind of imbalance in material power um, internationally ever, um, as far as at least in, in the modern state system. And as a result, I think world politics operates in very different ways today than it did in past millennia, the way that alliances are formed, uh, the likelihood of war and peace in particular areas. These things are all affected by the overall distribution of power. And right now, I think we're in this unique, what I call a unipolar system, where the United States has more than double um, what any of its potential rivals has. Can you expand on uh, your statement that, quote, unipolarity is not omnipotence, unquote? Yeah, I mean, certainly the United States can't uh, dictate terms to other countries. There's lots of weapons of the weak or asymmetric strategies that uh, weaker nations can use to push back on the United States. They can uh, do everything from you know meddling in U.S. elections. They can acquire nuclear weapons. They can sue the United States in international courts or slap trade barriers on it. And in, in other cases, they can just ignore the United States and just focus on what's going on in their own neighborhood. And as a result, you know, the United States isn't even present, let alone dominant in every corner of the world. So unipolarity doesn't, doesn't mean that the United States can just go it alone and um, enforce its will on other countries. It's often to get to achieve its interests, it's going to have to collaborate with regional players in pretty much every region of the globe. Why do you believe that in the case of North Korea, deterrence is the best of all um, alternatives policy-wise, all bad alternatives, I should say? I, th I think the fundamental problem for the United States is it, there's nothing that the United States could give North Korea that I think would realistically cause the North Koreans to give up their nuclear arsenal. And on the U.S. side, there doesn't seem to be any willingness to countenance um, a North Korea with nuclear weapons. So there's this kind of logjam. I think for the North Koreans, you know, the nuclear weapons are essentially their insurance policy. Um, that's how they prevent the United States from attacking them. That's how Kim Jong-un um, doesn't end up like Saddam Hussein or uh, Muammar Gaddafi, that at the end of the day, the way to deter the United States is with these nuclear weapons. And if they were to give that up in a bargain, um, it'd be like if you and I were pointing guns at each other and I said, put your gun down. I promise I won't shoot you. Well, now you have no way to enforce my end of the bargain because you've already put your weapon down. So given that, um, it, you know, it's not that I think diplomacy shouldn't be tried, but I think we need to have realistic expectations about what we can achieve. And ultimately, and unfortunately, deterrence is going to have to play a major role because North Korea, as far as I can see, is always going to have these nuclear weapons going forward. How dangerous for American unipolarity is the problem of what you characterize as, quote, imperial overstretch, unquote? I think it's a major danger. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, when you ha when you have a hammer, everything starts to look like nails. And so one danger of having this unrivaled economic and military power is the United States can, you know, wage stupid wars in areas that aren't critical for its national interests. It can throw its weight around in sort of promiscuous ways. Um, and you know, if you look at the, especially after the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
Um, a lot of scholars think the United States is basically becoming the poster child for this so-called imperial overstretch, you know, where a great power expands way beyond its means. Um, I think the United States has spent upwards of five, maybe even six trillion dollars um, fighting those wars. Uh, now, the United States is a very wealthy country, um, and so you could argue it can afford these kind of mistakes. But it just seems to me if the United States continues to intervene um, heavily, especially in major land wars in areas that aren't really the vital centers of global power, that uh, ultimately it's going to sort of fritter away its resources and um, be laid low as a result. We've seen lots of past really mighty great powers suffer from this kind of imperial overstretch. And the United States has certainly shown that it's susceptible to the same kind of pathologies. How important uh, for the United States is the problem of what you refer to as, quote, domestic decay, and how would it be possible to remedy it? To me, this is the biggest threat to U.S. primacy. Um, so it's what you often see in very powerful countries that don't face like an overwhelming uh, external threat is that people within the country then are free to turn on each other. So in extreme examples, you've seen countries actually devolve into civil wars because it's like we don't have an external enemy to unite us. So now all of the things we don't like about each other come to the fore and, you know, we end up fighting about that. I don't think the United States is headed to one of those extreme examples, but certainly if you look at the level of political polarization um, and then, you know, things like income or wealth inequality, the United States is becoming um, a divided and highly unequal society, obviously. Um, and the problem with that is it leads to paralysis in the government because no one can agree on anything. That then opens up space for special interests to essentially capture government agencies and use them for their own private benefit rather than for the public interest that they're supposed to serve. So, you know, if you look at the U.S. tax code and the number of giveaways to special interests, um, that I think is just one of many examples of areas where because there's so much infighting within the United States, as a result, special interests are able to kind of wiggle their way into the policymaking process. That, of course, then leads to a lot of corruption, um, a diversion of wealth, and then a heightening of these social tensions because it leads to more inequality because the game gets rigged in, in favor of particular elites and the vast majority of people, you know, don't see an improvement in their standards of living. So there's all these internal problems that I think are, are, um, are plaguing the United States. They've brought down past great powers. I don't have a, a golden solution that can uh, remedy it, but it seems to me the key is to anything that can empower a centrist majority um, rather than what we have right now, which is extreme polarization um, where people who are diametrically either uh, Democrat or Republican are the ones that are voting and are driving policy. If we can do things to empower a centrist majority, either by making it easier to vote so that more people vote, um, I think things, you know, initiatives to um, remove partisan gerrymandering, I think uh, modifying our elections so that it's so-called ranked choice voting so that, um, you know, if your first choice candidate doesn't win, then it, the, your vote for your second candidate then becomes um, counted. You know, there's just ways so that people can vote for more moderate candidates and so that more and also that more people are participating in the democratic process. 
that I hope would push policymaking towards a more moderate direction. But frankly, I, you know, these are all extreme. First of all, most of these reforms are not going to get passed through themselves. But second of all, even if they did, I think they're sort of band-aid solutions to a much more deep-seated problem that, if you look at history, has afflicted lots of powerful countries that don't have some kind of external enemy to pull the nation together and get people to sacrifice and build big, powerful national institutions that serve the public good um, rather than just pursuing their own individual interests. Why do you cast doubt on the possibility of a liberal international order in the absence of American primacy? Well, for one, I think we, we tried that um, between the world wars and obviously the, the League of Nations system completely collapsed and we ended up with another world war. So just given that history, I'm always a little skeptical that things will sort of sort themselves out on their own. I think there's also been a lot of good research showing that areas where the United States has extended security guarantees and actually lived up to them um, are areas that you've seen a dramatic decline in rates of conflict and war and a rise in prosperity. And it's not to say that the United States is going around acting as a global sheriff, but it's to say that you need a powerful actor to provide sort of a base level of security and a base amount of public goods, you know, patrolling the waterways and you know, providing a reserve currency. Otherwise, it becomes every nation for itself. So I just worry, you know, that if the United States, even if it remains very powerful, if it pulls back from the rest of the world, if it disbands its major alliances, that countries will essentially have to revert to the historical pattern of competition, despotism, um, and ultimately potentially even conflict. Um, so I worry, you know, you look in Asia, uh, I don't think, you know, China and Japan are going to suddenly make up or not have tensions if the United States were to pull back from the U.S.-Japan alliance, um, or from Taiwan, or from um, the Philippines. In NATO, I, I'm not so sure that the European project, whether it's the EU or just the, the fact that you have relatively cooperative relations among the major countries there, would survive in a world if the United States were to just pull out of NATO and no longer act as sort of a third-party guarantee of security there. Um, it's really hard to test this because um, you know we don't have a laboratory where we can adjust you know, where do you have security guarantees and where do you not? But the research, I think, is very clear, showing that the regions of the world, the United States has um, provided a baseline of security, have seen this remarkable drop in, in violence and competition. And then as a result, cooperation and prosperity are able to emerge. Why do you, correctly from my perspective, state that the policies or most of the policies of the current American administration are not what is needed to keep and retain American hegemony? Well, I, you know, I, a lot of people rip on the Trump administration for almost everything that it does. I think for me, my, my criticisms are a little bit more targeted. Um, I think one is, first of all, just domestically, the way that the Trump administration pursues and, and rallies its domestic base, I think it's very toxic for the country because a lot of it is based on um, these sort of us versus them narratives where they say, look, you know, we're going to make America great again. And I, I think it's pretty clear what they mean um, um, by that. 
And as a result, it further divides the country. It's built on inflaming divisions among Americans. And because I'm more worried about basically the country's institutions crumbling from within, that to me is the major threat. I think internationally, the main criticism I would have is just the way the administration has gone about um, ostracizing U.S. allies and not using the alliances to pursue a lot of the goals that the administration wants to pursue anyway. So you look, you know, the administration wants to put more pressure on China, but instead of rallying a multilateral coalition on trade, um, you know, it's been imposing tariffs on a lot of its trading partners. Um, And then I also worry about uh, the administration cutting the United States off from critical sources of national power. Um, So, uh, you know, foreign investment and immigration have kind of rejuvenated the U.S. economy and the U.S. workforce um, over over the decades. And at least vis-a-vis China, you know, the administration has imposed these very severe investment restrictions. And as a result, Chinese investment in the U.S. has dropped 90-something percent over the last year. Um, there's been a lot of talk of restricting Chinese immigration already. They're um, cutting or making it much more difficult for Chinese students to come to the United States. I get why they're implementing some of these policies, because certainly espionage is a major threat. But I just worry that the administration is applying these things in almost like a red scare, you know, across the board, draconian restrictions on foreign and in particular Chinese investment and immigration. And that, to me, is is sort of shooting ourselves in the foot, um, because at the end of the day that, you know, Chinese investment has kickstarted numerous American um, tech businesses, Chinese students, not only provide lots of money for America's great universities, but also um, many of them end up staying and joining the American workforce after they receive their degree. So I just also worry the administration, through some of its actions, is cutting the United States off from really important sources of power. Uh, Do you, though, think that um, it is uh, plausible or positive from an American perspective for uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises to invest in vital American uh, industries? I, I mean, no. So I, I, I do think that, you know, the suspicion of, say, a big Chinese state-owned enterprise, certainly I think there's, there's plenty of reason for that, given China's record of espionage. And just given the structure of its economy, um, where whether you call it China Inc. or, or state capitalist, I mean, this is fundamentally um, an economy that it's different from the way that, say, WTO rules were, were organized. And as a result, the United States has to take measures to protect its own industries in ways that it doesn't have to do so against other countries. Um, so I think the, the goal, and, and this ultimately is going to require a long-term effort with lots of experts um, and lots of people weighing in and creating basically lists of Chinese entities that are suspect and distinguishing those from um, potentially good economic actors, as well as creating lists of critical technologies that need to be highly protected versus other products that can basically be whitelisted. I think there's no real silver bullet here. It just requires lots of, frankly, a lot of research and um, a lot of uh, uh, panels that basically create these lists, and then that ultimately allows uh, organization or an institution like um, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States or CFIUS to make informed decisions about which you know Chinese entities are suspect and which are okay to let in. Um, but 
there's no way around the fact it's going to be a very labor-intensive process. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think, uh, namely, that the United States has a lot of advantages going for it. So rule number one is, don't, if, you know, if, if you want the United States to do well, don't screw it up. Um, you know, I think a lot of the long-term trends are generally in America's favor, and that the way that this can come crashing down is through either some gross overreaction to um, some foreign threat. So I worry in the case of China, people are building it into be this 10-foot tall threat that requires massive military investment, very offensive doctrines, severe investment and immigration restrictions, and basically a, a trashing of the international trade system. And to me, that is a massive overreaction that is actually doing more harm to the United States than, um, than, than good. And so I think looking, trying to take a deep breath and look at the long-term trends, realize that the United States does face threats, but they tend to be more asymmetric and limited than is often portrayed, and that there are a series of sort of prudent, more modest policies that could be taken to address those. Um, so I guess don't, don't commit suicide from fear of death would be the bottom line message that I want to get across. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Beckley, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thanks so much for having me.